Okay, good morning. Uh, if we're concerned about the future of biodiversity and the future of life on Earth, we have to be concerned about the future of tropical rainforests. Uh, they are home to over half of uh, all, all, all biodiversity on, on planet Earth, and they play a major role in a number of the major global biogeochemical cycles, uh, the cycling of energy and water and nutrients and carbon. And so small shifts in tropical forests can have huge consequences for the richness and variety of life on Earth. And uh, 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 much is known about uh, uh, the, the, the potential threat to tro tropical forests from, from climate change. Uh, in particular, the, the potential dieback of the Amazon has, has become one of the iconic uh, uh, symbols of, of potential climate change, and I'll talk about that. But also, there, there are other ways that I think that there are threats to the tropics that have been underappreciated. And one of them is how tropical biodiversity will cope with temperature change and with warming uh, uh, itself. And, and there are two, I'd say, weakly articulated popular perceptions about the tropics, which I'd like to, to disabuse in this talk. One is that uh, climate, climate change is, is most slower in the tropics. It's the temperate and the higher latitudes that are really changing fast, and the, the tropics are therefore of less concern. And the second is, well, the tropics are hot, so they like it hot anyway, so probably they'll cope with a few more degrees. Uh, none of them are clearly articulated in that sense, but, but I'd like to argue that both of those perceptions are wrong. And I will base uh, uh, some of my arguments around some of the IPCC scenarios, uh, particularly the, the A2 and the A1B scenario. Uh, so, so the A2 scenario at 2100 so is, is approximating sort of a, a 3.4 degrees world. So uh, if you're thinking of a four degrees and beyond world, just think of that and a little bit further. Although, as we heard yesterday, there, are, there is a potential for nonlinear interactions and tipping points. That, that means that it isn't simply a linear push from 3.4 to, to plus four degrees. And if we look at the A2 scenario, this 3.4 degrees average world at the, at the end of the century, the other thing to point out is that that is a global average temperature, as was pointed out yesterday. And when you look at the land regions, they are warming more than that. So a 3.4 degrees world corresponds to a, a 4 or 5 degree uh, uh, tropical land surface. And the tropics have been warming. These are data from the the Climate Research Unit at University of East Anglia Climatology, looking at trends in land regions uh, over, the last, uh, over the last three decades. And you see that the rate of war, uh, overall tropical land regions have warmed by almost one degree over the last three decades. The Amazon, Congo Basin, all of them are one degree warmer now than they were in the 1970s. And this is a similar, slightly slower rate to that in temperate regions uh, and in higher latitudes. And this is forgotten because we forget that land regions are warming more than, uh, than, than ocean regions. And also in the tropics in particular, the oceans can be warming more slowly because they have a deeper mixed layer. And so by averaging across latitude band, land and water, we, we, we underappreciate we under the rate of warming that's happening in the land regions. And if we compare that to potential rates of warming under the A2 emission scenario, so under the A2, we hit, we hit a, a, a three and a half, to four, four degree world at the end of this century. And you see that mo the average of 15 IPCC models is that the tropics will be around four degrees warmer by the end uh, of this century. As we saw in yesterday's talk from Richard Betts, it's possible that this four degrees uh, uh, plus scenario may happen sooner than that. It could be that by the middle of, of this century, the land regions are, are four degrees warmer. So the rates of warming that we're see we've seen in the last three uh, 
decades of around 0.3 degrees per decade is very similar to, to the rate projected from, from the IPCC uh, models on, on average. Uh, and so both the observations and the models are pointing to this consistent uh, warming over the tropics of a rate of around 0.3 degree per decade. A critical question, and one I don't think we have a handle on, is how the tropics warmed in the past. We know that temperate regions uh, did shift from ice age to, to non-ice age or had uh, uh, even more rapid shifts on the order of 100 years. Uh, and so, to some extent, uh, 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 temperate regions have experienced rapid climate change. We're, not, we're less clear if that's the case in the tropics. One, one study from Mark Bush and others argue that Amazonia at the end of the last ice age warmed at a rate much, much slower than higher latitude regions. So the warming we're experiencing this century is orders of magnitude greater than the warming experienced in the recent past. Uh, although I, I'd say that the paleoclimatic data is still rather sparse and, and, and it's, it's possible that we, the faster rates were experienced. But this different rate of past experience compared to what we're having this century may be critical in determining how well adapted tropical organisms are to the rapid warming that's occurring this century. So the warmest parts of the planet are warming and will continue to warm fast. And how will tropical organisms and ecosystems uh, respond to this warming? So this gets on to the second part, uh, that, that somehow tropical organisms are heat adapted or like it, like it warm and, and are somehow more resilient than, than, than cooler region organisms. There's a, a data emerging, still, still relatively thin on the ground, that argues the opposite, that actually tropical organisms are more vulnerable to warming than, than temperate organisms. And the, these data sets here have been collected on the left from, from a few insects and from a, a few lizards on, on the right. And, the, uh, and what, what these researchers have done is tried to explore the, the Darwinian fitness curves uh, of, of uh, organisms. And they do this by, say, say in this case, this is, these are two closely related insects, a temperate species and a tropical species. And they uh, let their population grow in laboratory conditions and under ideal conditions with plenty of food supply, with no predator pressure, and see the rate at which that population grows. And that gives a measure of the Darwinian fitness of that organism. And then you can repeat that experiment under different controlled temperatures. And so in the, in the case of a of, a, of a, this organism, you can do it at zero degrees, 10 degrees, 20 degrees, and get a measure of the, the, the fitness curve of that organism. And what you find in the, in the case of the temperate organism is this is the current mean temperature experienced by that organism. And these bars are the range of seasonal and annual, uh, seasonal temperature variation that that, that uh, organism experiences. And you can see that for this temperate organism, A, the fitness curve is much broader to, to the, this critical value here. When there's, a, when, when there's a strong decline in fitness, and also the current temperature is below the optimum temperature uh, for, for that organism. So if you warm the mean conditions of this organism by a few degrees, you actually increase the relative fitness of that organism. Look at the tropical organism, and you see that the, the, the fitness curve, firstly, is of a similar width to, to, the, to the range of temperatures experienced by that organism, which is much narrower than, than that temperate, uh, temperate organism. And secondly, the current mean temperature is close to the peak, so that if you shift that temperature by a few degrees, you have a decline in fitness of, of that uh, tropical organism. And why would this be? Partially, as you can see from these, from these data, it reflects the fact that temperate regions have much stronger seasonal variation in their temperatures, much stronger diurnal variation. So 
inherently they have to be more plastic in their response to, 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 to these uh, uh, changes. And also it may reflect some paleo history that temperate organisms have had to cope with rapid transitions and colonize areas after the ice sheets retreated uh, and, and, and other similar rapid transitions. Whereas tropical organisms may have experienced less uh, the temperature variation throughout their, their, their normal seasonal cycle and also may not have experienced this rapid and extreme changes in, in their recent ecological memory. And so, so these authors then try to see what a, an A2 scenario type warming would, would mean for tropical fitness. And what were, uh, comes as no surprise that what they find is that for, for a given warming of three to four degrees, you have a decline of fitness of, these are ectotherms in this case, of so insects, lizards, cold-blooded cold creatures. Uh, and you see a decline in fitness in the tropical regions and an increase of fitness in, in, the, in, the, in the cooler regions. And, uh, and the similar principles probably apply to, 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 to mammals and to birds, although it's much more difficult to, to get some concrete data uh, on that. And, uh, but a decline in fitness doesn't necessarily map into extinction. Uh, the picture is, is far more complex than that because uh, all ecosystems, and tropical ecosystems in particular, are part of a complex web of interactions, food webs, competitive interactions, predator-prey relations. And what will be happening to these ecosystems is that we are changing the relative fitness of every node in this web. Some, some species, because of their, geological, their ecological history, because of the, the nature of the species, will have different we have greater declines in fitness, others will have possibly improvements in fitness. So we're changing the relative strength of all these nodes in these complex, uh, uh, in these complex webs. We are reweaving the web of life in, uh, by imposing this, uh, this rapid change. And actually predicting how the systems will, will change in their composition uh, is an incredibly uh, complex uh, challenge. Uh, there's some evidence that the, the web of life is reweaving in the tropics. One example, which is uh, one of the simplest examples, is from some work uh, Oliver Phillips and, and others uh, have done in the, in the tropics, where uh, they've looked at, uh, in, in Amazonia, where they've looked at the, the abundance of lianas. Lianas are uh, functional parasites. They grow up to the forest canopy without building biomass. Uh, uh, they're just, they're by, by, uh, just building limited biomass to, to climb using other trees as their structural supports. And... Uh, they tend to be disturbance-adapted, exploiter-disturbed uh, environments. They also tend to, there's, there's some evidence that they, they exploit higher CO2 conditions. And the, there was a paper that uh, Phillips and others published in Nature a few years ago showing that the abundance of lianas is increasing across the, uh, across the, the neotropics. And uh, other evidence since that has, has backed up this finding. And I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. This is one of the easiest distinctions that we can do in a tropical rainforest with, with sufficient data. And probably... There are huge shifts going on in, in, in abundance and relative uh, abundance of, of organisms that, that we simply don't have the data to, to, to have observed systematically. So organisms aren't passive in their response to changing fitness. Uh, there, there, there are a variety of things that they can do. They can change their physiological thresholds and acclimate to these new temperatures. Plants in particular have greater ability to adjust to, to a warming of a few degrees uh, than many organisms. And, uh, they may have ra undergo rapidly evolutionary adaptation, particularly if they have a short generation times, rapid turnover times. They could have behavioral change. Uh, for example, how much time they spend in the shade versus how much time in the sun. Well, that's less of an option if you're a canopy understory species. Or if none of those work, they can try to migrate or, or disperse. 
And in all of these cases, it's the rate of change, I argue, that is probably uh, the, the greatest challenge. How do you, we cope with a four-degree warming, plus, or, four in the, uh, or even greater warming, five or six degrees warming, over a century? And again, and this, is, this rate of warming is particularly challenged uh, in the tropics, in the case of migration and dispersal, because one of the other features of the tropics is that the horizontal gradients in temperature are much shallower than they are at higher latitudes. So this is simply a, a latitudinal gradient in temperature as a crude proxy of horizontal gradients. And you see that in the tropics, you have to travel around 380 kilometers for a one degree change in your surface temperature. Whereas in northern temperate regions, you travel a third of that distance for that one degree change. So tropical organisms have to travel three times as far to cope with the same, uh, uh, horizontally to cope with the same temperature change. And uh, this highlights uh, uh, something that's important for responding to climate change everywhere, but is acutely important in the tropics, which is the role that highland regions and mountain regions will play in this rapidly warming scenario. So taking the case of a study site of ours in the Peruvian Andes, and as I said, if the Amazon basin, well, as the Amazon basin is warming, the horizontal temperature gradient in the Amazon is 380 kilometers per degree C. The vertical gradient, however, simply going upwards in elevation, is only 180 meters for a one degree change in temperature. So it's far easier, if possible, to migrate upwards than it is to migrate uh, horizontally. And so mountains are often seen as particularly vulnerable ecosystems, and in some ways they are, but they're also perhaps the best hopes for resilience for lowland species as the lowlands become difficult for, for, for some species to inhabit, not only because of their, their elevation, but also because they have a range of microhabitats. You just have, simply have to change your inclination, your sun angle slightly, and you have a, you're slightly cooler or you're slightly warmer. So there's a, there's a much, rich, much greater richness of microhabitats in mountain environments. So on current rates of warming, the, the rates of warming that I've uh, described earlier on, which, which has, have occurred over the last three decades, the horizontal migration rate required for those Amazonian species that, that are losing out in this reweaving of the web of life is, a, is 116 kilometers per decade, which is 32 meters every day in terms of migration dispersal. Clearly a challenge. Conversely, the vertical migration distance is around 55 meters per decade, which may be something that is more possible. At this particular study site in the Andes, we have, uh, as, as a research consortium, we've been documenting this, this shift uh, and the, the, there is indeed a, sh a migration of tree species up, up slope in this valley, although the rate that we're observing is on the order of 25 to 35 meters a decade. So the ecosystems are responding to the warming, but not at the speed that matches uh, uh, the, the, the rapidity uh, of the warming. And I think that may be indicative of what's, what's going, to, going to happen over this century. There is a response, but the response simply cannot be fast enough to, to cope with the rapidity of, of the warming. And so mountains can be a refugia uh, by being cooler. Uh, they also have a danger of being trapped. If your mountain is not tall enough, you migrate to this cooler mountain and then you're trapped at the top when, when, when everything becomes too, too warm. So there's a danger there. Oh, or there can be a chance, migrate around to a cooler side of the mountain and then and, uh, you, you have a slightly, a slightly cooler temp temperature. Uh, that, of course, is an idealized scenario with the lowlands connected to, to the mountains. This is unlikely to be the case in many of the tropics. This is a business as usual scenario for Amazonia by Brutaldo Suarez and others, uh, which is not a definite projection for the future. There are reasons for optimism that the pathways of deforestation in Brazil may be very different from this in the near future. Uh, but uh, but in, under this scenario, you can see the challenge that these organisms will face in, the, in this warming world, that the landscape is fragmenting, the connection between the lowlands, and in this case, the Andes here is breaking up as the Piedmont uh, deforests, 
and it becomes far more challenging for, for, for this potential migration. So planning for conservation in, this, in the context of climate change means ensuring that there are migration corridors in this landscape and possibly assisted migration. Uh, and so the greatest threat is, uh, sometimes you're asked, well, what is the greatest threat to the tropical forest, climate change or deforestation? Well, both of those are happening, and really the, the, there is no choice that the, the greatest threat is the fact that there's a synergy of these two, uh, two phenomena. And uh, so we, we have a, uh, one possibility for, for the Amazon, uh, this business-as-usual scenario with extensive uh, 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 fragmenta fragmentation, particularly of the eastern Amazon, and isolated patches of forest, or we have a possibility of a, a higher governance pathway of, of, of development in the Amazon, where you still have some de deforestation, but you have large, intact, connected blocks of, of forest. And the, 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 the battle, the choice between these two will, will, will I think, strongly affect the, the future of, of much of the biodiversity of Amazonia in a warming world. Uh, I'll talk now briefly about uh, precipitation. Uh, so temperature, I would argue, is an underappreciated threat to tropical organisms. If the, uh, how it'll play out in terms of the richness of, of the tropics is, is something that we don't really have no real data on. Uh, and more likely, so, but, but there may be huge shifts in, in biodiversity. It's unlikely to be biome shifting by itself. It's unlikely that temperature on the order of a few degrees is likely to cause uh, a forest to, to disappear. Precipitation has, and changes in precipitation, do, does have the potential to be biome shifting. If you dry a region enough, then you can no longer support a forest. And so therefore the ecosystem functioning is more affected by precipitation than by temperature. If we look at projected patterns of precipitation change under the A1B scenario, we see that amongst the models there is some consistency. Areas that are coloured here are where two-thirds of models agree on direction of change, and areas that are dotted are where 90% of models agree on the direction of change. And you see broadly, as was pointed out yesterday, it's the subtropical and the Mediterranean regions that, that seem the most vulnerable to, to, to strong drying. But this belt of potential drying does extend into the Amazon forest, at least. Uh, in areas like Africa, this means that, doesn't mean that there's no threat. It's just that some models say there's going to be strong drying. Others say there's going to be strong wetting. And there's no, uh, the, the, the risk is still there, but there's no consensus on, on, on that risk. So looking at the Amazon, uh, the, there is some suggestion that the, the eastern Amazon may, may potentially get drier, maybe one particularly vulnerable region. We looked at uh, uh, this question in more detail in a paper that's going to be in the special issue that John Schellenhuber mentioned yesterday, but it's, out, it's available online already. And where we looked at I did a simple biogeography of Amazonia and looked at the, what essentially was a metric of the intensity of the dry season and the total annual rainfall and looked at where forest exists now and where savanna exists now. And you see that the forest, you need a weak dry season or sufficient total annual rainfall. On the right here, you have rainforest. On the left, you have more seasonal forests with strong dry seasons. And down here, you have savannas. And then we looked at how climate models project change in, in Amazonia. And the first thing we found is that many climate models are challenged in simulating the current climate of Amazonia. They're, they're much, they, they get the rainfall much lower than it actually is. So we, we try to normalize for that effect by starting from the current observed climate rather than, for, uh, rather than referring to, to the current simulated climate and looked at patterns of change. And you can see that some models do suggest that there is strong drying, and particularly the Hadley Center model does push, push the climate into the, uh, of Amazonia into a savanna zone. Uh, and that can't be disregarded. Uh, the, there are reasons that the Hadley Center model may, may be getting things uh, uh, right that other models do not capture. So it is a distinct possibility. But the, 
The bulk of the models suggest uh, a consistent shift towards a more seasonal forest uh, with stronger dry seasons and stronger wet seasons rather than necessarily a shift to, to a strong decline uh, in, in rainfall. So this is perhaps a more likely climatological outcome for, for Amazonia this century rather than, 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 than huge reductions in, in rainfall. An additional factor to, to bring into this is not to consider precipitation alone, but how temperature and CO2 will play out. And uh, under, under higher temperatures, you, have, you may have higher evaporation rates and more water use by the forest that can increase water stress even if there's no change in rainfall. On the other hand, higher CO2, as well as stimulating the growth of the forest, can increase the water use efficiency of the forest and, and cause a reduction in evaporation. And so we, in this paper, we, had a, we did a quick simulation to see the order of these, magnitude of these effects and found that the temperature effect did increase the water use of the forest and the CO2 effect did tend to cause a reduction in, in, in water use, but overall the temperature effect was more important and therefore uh, it suggested that, that tropical forests may become more water stressed even if there is no uh, net change in precipitation. In, in, in the tropical region. And so what this implies in terms of this diagram is that a further stronger push towards a more seasonal climate regime with stronger dry seasons, more water stress dry seasons, and possibly about pushing up of this boundary of where savannas persist over forests because you require more water to maintain a forest because water use has become higher. And uh, so, so we're arguing that tropical forests are likely to become more seasonal. There seems to be a consistent pattern coming out, not just for the Amazon, but for other tropical regions with stronger dry seasons, but potentially resilient as ecosystems uh, in terms of not necessarily shifting into, into savannas. However, one important thing to consider in this is the role of fire and how fire interacts uh, with these phenomena. Uh, and... Uh, Naturally, there are very few ignition points uh, within, within a tropical forest. So even if it is seasonally dry during a strong dry season, you get a buildup of litter and it becomes potentially flammable. Because there, are, there aren't ignition points around, it's very rare to, do you actually have fires. This is changing with the uh, ongoing fragmentation and deforestation of the tropics. And these are data from a, my colleague, Luis Aragão, where he looked at the state of Acre in Brazil in 2004, which is a normal year, the white areas are deforested areas, the green areas are forest areas, and in 2005, which was a drought year. And what he found in 2005 was that there was a far greater incidence of fire leaking out from the agricultural areas into the, into the surrounding forests. So the forest had some response to the drought, but seemed largely resilient. However, it was temporarily flammable, and the, the proximity of fire ignition points in a temporarily flammable forest was enough to uh, to cause a spread of these fires from the agricultural zones into the, uh, into the surrounding forest. And Joss Barlow and Carlos Perez and others have documented this process where a fire can leak into a tropical forest, start breaking it apart, and could be followed by further fires uh, if a drought becomes frequent enough. And so it may be this interaction between seasonal drought and ongoing fragmentation that pushes the Amazon to a potential dieback. And if, if there is a dieback of the Amazon, I will venture that this is what it will look like. Uh, a gradual breakdown of the forest through repeated fire occurrence and, and turning not into a savanna, but into this secondary fire-adapted scrub, uh, uh, which experiences fires uh, every few years. But crucially, it'll be the interaction between climate change and human, direct human fragmentation and uh, action on the forest that'll determine uh, the pathway uh, of this Amazon dieback. And so these forests around here 
are more seasonal, potentially they're also more fire prone, and the fire will, will play this crucial role, crucial role. And so we, we, we have a choice in this diagram. Uh, the background data are the average drought probability from the uh, uh, IPCC models, uh, the, the, the risk of drought, and you can see the southeastern Amazon has the highest risk of drought from global climate change. The, uh, uh, the, the darker brown here is patterns of deforestation under a business as usual uh, model and under a high governance model. And here we can see we'll have a scenario where a, a fragmented and dry forest warmed by global warming and by local effects uh, is, under, uh, is under increasing pressure uh, even in the remaining patches of forest where here there may be a forest that is adapted and resilient as, as a forest at least even if the biodiversity is shifting as an ecosystem it may be more resilient to, to, the, to the warming and drying that, that may occur and there's some evidence from uh, meteorological simulations that maintaining uh, deforestation below some sort of threshold of around 40% between 40 and 60% maintains a regional rainfall uh, provision. So the forests recycle more water back to the atmosphere that falls down as rainfall, whereas deforesting beyond a threshold can cause a decline in, in, reef, in, uh, uh, in, in rainfall. So again, making the same point that it's the interaction between deforestation and climate change that, that, that could navigate us towards a tipping point in the Amazon or away from a tipping point in the Amazon or in other tropical forest regions as well. And, uh, Another crucial interaction is that has how deforestation affects surface temperatures. So if we look at this, this scenario for the eastern Amazon, uh, the, the global warming effect will, uh, for a four degrees world will make the Amazon five or six degrees uh, warmer. Under this scenario, it's four and a half degrees warmer. Uh, and, uh, the, uh, and so the, uh, those of you who've been in a tropical region with 32 degrees, 31 degrees, and, and very humid in a normal tropical day, those same days will be 36 degrees uh, under, or, or more under a four degrees world. And that, that, that affects the livability of these regions, both for humans and for, for, for other creatures. On, however, on top of that, deforestation itself could be, can warm the surface by, by shutting off this evaporation effect. Uh, there's a recycling of water from the soil back to the atmosphere, which cools the near surface atmosphere off the tropics. And, uh, and can be a significant, and so the so deforestation itself could warm the surface of the eastern Amazon by up to five degrees. So overall, the combination of those two could cause a warming of 10 degrees. So again, this, this temperature interaction uh, could be critical. On the other hand, we could imagine a scenario where we still have the global four degree scenario, but we've left large areas of the tropics intact. So we've mitigated at least this, this deforestation effect as a local effect, and therefore there is still a severe temperature change going on, but it's half the magnitude of what, what would be occurring uh, if, if the forest was disappearing and, and fragmented. So maintaining tropical forest area is a strategy for adapting to climate change uh, in these warming tropical regions. And there are a variety of ways that it does this by minimizing contact points between forest fragments and, and fire zones, lowering surface temperatures, because of the evaporative cooling, maintenance of shade habitats, maintenance of dry season rainfall, and maintaining connectivity for those species that need to flee to cooler and, and wetter regions. And uh, of course, forest protection is also a component strategy for mitigation of climate change, the recognition uh, of its role as a, as a tropical forest, as their role as stores of carbon and as sinks for carbon. And this also presents an opportunity that, uh, that the UN 
negotiations uh, this year. It, it seems quite likely either then or soon after that some deal will be done on reduced emissions for deforestation and forest degradation where payments will be made and the amount of potential finance available for tropical forest conservation and altering the, the economics of the degradation of, of many areas of the tropics may be changed. The, but that'll open up huge challenges as well. The finance is only part of, of the issue there. But tackling climate change ironically also provides an opportunity to build in a climate resilience plan for tropical forests into, the, into our planning for the 21st century. So to conclude, rapid change is coming to tropical forests and climate change and deforestation present a dangerous synergy. And we're only beginning to comprehend the impacts of this change uh, for, for, for the richness and, and the functioning of tropical forest regions. Rapid climate change is reweaving the web of life, not just in the tropics, but everywhere. We do not yet know what this implies for risk of extinction or ecosystem shift. So I'd be hesitant to put any numbers on that. But what we have engaged in is a rapid reordering of, of, of webs of life, and of the remotest places uh, on the planet. And new opportunities for tropical forest conservation are emerging through the recognition of their value in climate change mitigation and climate change adaptation. And we are only beginning to grasp the challenge that these opportunities will bring. So thank you.